0: This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexum-Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition and the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium. We're launching a new Access to Care special series, and joining us here to help us kick it off are Regina Cunningham and Marcus Henderson. Both served on the committee for the recently released Future of Nursing 2020-2030 report from the National Academy of Medicine. They'll be sharing with us some of the key findings and recommendations to come out of this seminal study dedicated to charting a path to achieve health equity. Regina Cunningham is the Chief Executive Officer at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, as well as Adjunct Professor and Assistant Dean at Penn School of Nursing. Marcus Henderson is a psychiatric mental health nurse and serves as the charge Nurse of Adolescent Services for the Fairmount Behavioral Health System. He's also a lecturer at Penn School of Nursing. Regina and Marcus, welcome to At the Core of Care. Thanks, Sarah.
1: Thank you, Sarah.
0: So to start our conversation about health equity in the United States, let's first get a sense of how our country compares to other developed nations— when it comes to rates of poverty, income inequality, mass incarceration, we do seem to be up there.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think we all know that the US spends an incredible amount of money on healthcare more than any other developed nation, but we don't get a tremendous amount for that money. And as you mentioned, we do have uh, extremely high poverty rates, we have income inequality that's really substantial in this country and we have some of the poorest health outcomes of any of the developed nations. So when you look at us compared to other OECD nations, our outcomes look pretty bad. I think one of the factors in the U.S. and something we go into in a lot of depth in the report is really what other than medical care really influences people's health outcomes. And so there's a tremendous discussion about this from our research that's published in the report. And we know that Aside from medical care, there are lots of other factors that influence health outcomes, including where people live, what kind of jobs they have and what kind of income they have. So sort of their socioeconomic status, their level of education certainly is an important influencer. And access to things like, you know, can they get healthy foods? Can they maintain a healthy diet? Do they have access to that in the neighborhoods where they live? Do they have ways to get back and forth to healthcare, reliable transportation and, you know, reasonable, safe housing? Those are some of the factors that we really go into in a lot of depth, The what we call the social determinants of health, as well as social factors that we know really influence what happens to people in terms of health and their access to healthcare services.
1: And it's also inclusive of the way that structural racism impacts the lived experiences of American citizens. For me, it's absurd to think that in the United States, because of where you live, how much money you make, what level of education you have, what type of job you have, what racial and ethnic background you're from determines how long you'll live and how healthy you'll be. And piggybacking off of Regina, the social determinants of health we think of at more of a population level. So this is how we as a society, a community, a government distribute resources across various sectors, education, housing, transportation, and how we also distribute those across different population groups. And at the individual level, it's about whether or not I have the ability to keep a roof over my head for me and my family, put food on the table, get to and from a healthcare provider, have access to a quality education, not experience racism and discrimination when I walk out my front door into my school, into the workplace or anywhere in my community and have a job that pays me enough to have all of these things. So the biggest difference is in how much an individual versus another has to worry about these issues because of where they live and where they work. I would also add an extension beyond the traditional social determinants that we talk about. Also thinking about social support. Do I have the family with the resources and ability to support me in my efforts to work, to raise my children, to be a productive member of my community? If we think in the context of COVID-19, communities of color, parents who are essential workers having to leave their children at home to experience schooling by themselves, losing grandparents or not having the ability to have those social support systems around in their community, in their school, to kind of also support their everyday living. So when we think about the differences between high-income families and low-income families, it's also thinking more beyond the nuclear family that we often think about.
2: I think that's a really important point, Marcus. And just going back to living conditions and, you know, you don't have to look any further than COVID-19, right? So we saw in very, very sharp focus, the inequities really laid bare around some of the social factors that Marcus is talking about. So that really illustrated many of the issues that we talk about in the report. I want to go back to the structural racism piece of things, which, you know, Marcus talked about very eloquently before, We did spend a lot of time as a committee focused on this. You know, the research really shows that that is one of the most important variables in determining health outcomes. So we talked a lot about structural racism, cultural racism and discrimination, which Marcus mentioned before. But really, the most important determinant of those three was thought to be based out of the research findings was really around the structural racism issues that really come into play in uh, shaping outcomes of health One of the things that we identified in our research on the report was that structural racism has contributed to this very high incarceration rate in the United States, which really exceeds the rates that we see in other countries. And what the research shows is that people who are incarcerated have greater chances of developing chronic health conditions. And some of that's related to the factors of being incarcerated. So things like the conditions, the impact on long-term physical and mental health, and things of that nature.
0: I recall that in the first Future of Nursing report, the 2010 report, it wasn't really until 2015 that diversity was pulled out as, we really need to have a recommendation here. And there have been conversations about, you know, why wasn't it more prominent in that first report? Why wasn't it its own recommendation? And some discussion about was there not enough research, you know, because that's something that the National Academy of Medicine really looks to, right? That body of research. Can you speak a little bit to the research that you found? Is it that in the last 10 years, this body of research has developed? Were we not paying enough attention to it before? I would love to
1: hear your perspective on that. I think it's the latter. It's that we haven't paid enough attention to it. I mean, Dr. David Williams, co-chair of the committee, has dedicated his life's work to document the impacts of racism on health. So it's that we weren't in a place as a profession and as a nation to call out racism as a determinant of health. And that's one thing that this report does. And when we talk about diversity, it goes beyond that. It's about equity and inclusion because I can hire a person from a diverse background, but that doesn't mean I treat them equitably and that doesn't mean I make them feel included. So when we use the word diversity, we need to ensure that we're also talking about equity and inclusion. And that's what this 2030 Future of Nursing Report really talks about. It doesn't call out only racism as a determinant of health, but it also talks about racism in nursing and how nursing has been complicit. And that's what's really important here, that we as a profession of nursing are saying that we need to address this because if we don't address racism as a root cause to health inequity, We're never going to be able to achieve health equity and the vision that we set out for in this report.
2: I would underscore exactly what Marcus said. We did identify research evidence in the area of racism in nursing, a number of important papers that were written about this, but I do think those have been more recent. But I think it's exactly what Marcus said. I don't think that we were in a place or at a time when we wanted to pull it out as explicitly as we do in this report. And I think the events in the nation over the past year really set the stage and created an important platform for us to be very deliberate in the way that we approach that as a committee. And I think that that is a really, really important component of this report, for sure.
0: Thank you for providing that broader overview. And it's the future of Nursing Report, but it's the why of why nurses are doing what they're doing. And Marcus, I know that you started to talk about nurses Being complicit in these structures in our healthcare systems, I think being complicit as we look at health equity, right? So turning toward the positive, creating that culture of health equity, of healthcare
2: equity. How do nurses fit in? I think that nurses are very very well positioned to play a really really important role here and that's what we're calling out in the report that's part of our vision to really empower nurses to begin to use their skills and knowledge to make a difference in this arena which is huge it's not really a new thing for nursing to be honest with you if you went back in time you'd see plenty of really profound examples of nurses addressing social determinants of health. So, you know, we do address some of these, although not all of them, certainly in the report. But nurses have a very holistic way of looking at the people they're caring for, the communities they're serving. So they look at the whole person, not just really the immediate needs that are in front of them related specifically to their health, but they look at things like what is their home environment like? Do they have access to the right foods that can help them to maintain a diabetic diet or whatever it is that's required. So nurses have a very, very long and I think very rich and meaningful history working in this space. There's definitely more that we need to do in order to bolster nurses to be able to continue to do that and to expand their work in this space to really drive health equity and to improve access to health services for all people.
1: And for me, the question really is not... Where do nurses fit in? But it's really where do nurses not fit in? Because the answer is shorter, because nurses fit in everywhere. And that's what this report lays out, that you don't have to only be a nurse in a traditional medical setting to address health equity. You can be a school nurse, a public health nurse, a home care nurse, a nurse that works for the housing authority, a nurse that works for the transportation department, fill in the blank. Nurses are needed everywhere because of that perspective, that holistic perspective that we provide grounded in the individual's experience to improve their life and quality of life in their community and where they live. And we discuss that in the report. We talk about all the different ways through leadership, through the workforce, through education, you know, pick a chapter and we discuss where nurses fit in and why nurses are poised to do this. But to the point you mentioned earlier about this being a report for nursing and being more than that, and that was something we as a committee talked about often. Yes, this is a report on the future of nursing, but it's a report on the future of health, the future of communities and populations.
0: And so what are some of the big goals in this area? Um, Can you provide any examples of
2: some of the goals that this report sets forth? One of the key issues and recommendations that we talk about is lifting scope of practice barriers, right? So first of all, scope of practice barriers or practice barriers can influence nursing at a variety of different levels. We tend to think about it more at the advanced practice level, and that's the example that I will use, but it's not exclusively restricted to advanced practice providers. But, you know, one of the issues is that we have called for Scope of practice barriers to be relaxed. And we have good evidence from the states where that has happened, as well as the District of Columbia, right? We know that from those states, first of all, there are more advanced practice registered nurses working in those states because they have more flexibility in what they are able to do. They're able to do the things they're actually educationally prepared and trained to do. So that becomes an important attractor for those resources to be in that state. But we also know that access to care is improved in those states. We know that the quality of care is improved in those states. In the 27 states that do not still have practice authority, we know that there are a lot of barriers to quality of care and barriers to access to care. And, you know, one of the really interesting things that happened during the pandemic that is worth paying a lot of attention to as we move forward was that many of the states that have restrictive practices relaxed those. Either they completely removed scope of practice barriers under sort of emergency operating procedures or states had waivers around certain things. For example, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had like over 100 waivers. About four of those were related to the advanced practice scope. And so it's a natural experiment in many respects, right? Because we can look at the outcomes of the states where those waivers or relaxation of the practice restrictions were put in place and see what the outcomes were. There was an early study that's already come out, Not we didn't include this in the report because it's new, but it's come out already out of a Midwestern state where the mortality rate was lower when they relaxed the barrier. And I think we need to pay really close attention to the outcomes that we see related to the COVID-19 changes in uh, legislation that we saw. Some of the states that relaxed their barriers have already made that permanent, but others have not. And so we'll have to be watching that closely and see what happens. Our recommendation is that they should leave them in place. But we, of course, don't know yet whether they will or not.
1: I think another big goal that the report establishes is talking about payment and how are we paying for health equity. And we really call for establishing sustainable and flexible payment models that support nurses to do exactly this work. And we call out specific attention to school nurses, and public health nurses. These are two specialties that have been undervalued and underrecognized by our system, but contribute leaps and bounds to promoting health and health equity in our communities. So this report really calls attention to, we need to think differently about how we pay for nursing services and how we value nursing care, because nursing needs to be off of the expense side of the ledger, where we've spent too much time. And this report is calling for a shift in that language in the way that we view how nursing care is provided and where it's provided and how we pay for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We have a chapter dedicated to that looking at potential for innovative models. I just underscore exactly what Marcus said regarding the public health and school nursing situation. There's a an incredible lack of school nursing, and many times that's the only resource that children might have that's health-related. So finding ways to value those roles to a greater extent and fund the work that's going on in that context is a critical recommendation of the report. And I
0: think it speaks to, Marcus earlier talked about the cross-sector nature of this work, and unfortunately school nursing is sort of the victim of that cross-section of silos, right? So we have education and public health and healthcare, and they, despite being critical resources in all three of those areas, end up sort of as a, you know, not a priority. So it was such a great call out in the report to recognize that school nurses have to be a priority. They should really be a priority across all three areas.
1: I'm going to add two things. When we take nurses out of schools, we're not helping children stay in school, manage their social, emotional, behavioral needs. And it's not only about supporting the child, it's about supporting the family. Sometimes that school nurse is the only connection for a family to get food, to find shelter, to get access to a primary care provider or whatever it might be. So school nurses play such a critical role. And I've learned so much more about the importance of school nursing because I take students into public schools in Philadelphia. And I get to see firsthand the impact that a school nurse has on a child and on a population. My second point as a goal of this report is we're calling on nursing to do a lot. We're calling on nurses on top of everything else that we do. You're also now responsible for addressing social determinants of health and social needs. So we talk a lot in one of our chapters about well-being and how do we support the well-being of nurses and making sure that nurses are supported to do their job. Because if we don't get the support that we need, how can you expect us to go out in our communities and do that work? And that's a really important goal that this report sets up. And the National Academies has had previous reports about well-being, but it's all been words with no action. And I think that this report, in combination with other work the National Academies is doing, is keeping that at the forefront, especially in the context of COVID-19.
2: I wanted to just add something about the school nursing as well. Our committee obviously reviewed all the research evidence on, you know, the topics that we cover in the report, but we also did field research. I mean, we also went out and talked to people and visited different programs that were nurse-led kind of interventions or programs that were really making a difference in terms of the social determinants of health. And we saw a couple of different models of school nursing in place that were just absolutely inspiring and amazing in terms of what these nurses were doing. But I would say that one of the things that I didn't appreciate before we did this research was the incredible complexity of the populations of the children they're dealing with. I mean, I would say that some of these children have very, very complex healthcare needs, both physical and behavioral health, as Marcus pointed out. It's a very, very complex role in many respects. And I think that in and of itself is somewhat underappreciated. So I just wanted to add that to the discussion.
0: I really appreciated um, both of you calling specific attention to the mental health needs of students and how that really does often fall on school nurses. It's something that we heard from school nurses early in the pandemic. We had done a few episodes right when the pandemic started and we had reached out to school nurses and that was something that they really called out right at the beginning. And we recently followed up to say, you know, what does it look like now? What are we hearing? So stay tuned for that. That actually is gonna be addressed in our Access to Care series as well. So I, I definitely wanna move us to talking about how we sort of like cultivate these skills. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about other ways of increasing nursing capacity and what's coming to mind Looking at nursing compacts, looking at telehealth, national nurse identifier systems. I know that has a, a relationship to the funding piece as well. What are you seeing as promising practices in that space and looking at removing some of the barriers in healthcare more broadly?
2: Well, we can talk a bit about the Nursing Licensure Compact, which is an opportunity for, there are, I think, 35 states now that have participated in the Nursing Licensure Compact, which essentially allows nurses who meet the criteria and it can be registered nurses or I believe licensed practical nurses as well, but not advanced practice registered nurses, not yet, although that's in the sort of talking development stages. But what it does is allow multi-state licensure, which is important in terms of things like telehealth, which you mentioned, because it provides access to services, particularly in areas that might be geographically remote or in other states across state lines, which is important in places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, which are so close, or other states that are configured geographically in proximity, it allows that flexibility for nurses to be able to practice across state lines. And so that is something that has been done to help address the barriers as well.
1: Thinking about how are we transforming nursing education to also increase that capacity? So what do we really need to focus on and what do we not need to focus on? Or where do we shift And put that onus on the employer to ensure nurses are being trained with those skills on that end so we can focus on some of those more core competencies of SDOH, equity, population health, addressing racism, and so many other topics within that foundational period when they're learning to then enter practice is what I was thinking about of how we increase capacity. Because that's what we're lacking in right now. Nurses are saying, I wish I had better training in social determinants of health, population health, mental health, complex care, working with underserved populations. I wish I had better training in these areas so I could do my job better. So one way that we increase capacity is ensuring that we're producing graduates who feel prepared and feel competent to perform their job no matter where they work.
2: I think, you know, one of the things, too, building on Marcus's comment was that it is a lot of information. Nurses need the knowledge and the skill to be able to do it. So when we think about the nursing education piece, we didn't find a lot of evidence about this being in the curriculum, sort of across the board. This does need to be in the curriculum so that nurses receive the appropriate content, but it's not just the didactic content, which I'll talk about in a minute. But to Marcus's point before, you can't keep just jamming in more and more and more into the curriculum, right? So you have to figure out, okay, are there things that can come out? Are there things that are less relevant? How do you prioritize the curricular content? And I'm not an expert in this at all, but how do you prioritize this so that you're preparing the future workforce in a way that they will feel confident and have the ability to do this effectively. The other piece about this, which we talk about in the report and we thought was a critical component of this, is that historically our sort of historical approach to the educational process has been very much focused on traditional clinical settings, like the hospital, even ambulatory care is a stretch. Most of the clinical experiences that people get are in the hospital setting, or maybe they have one sort of community health rotation. And what we're talking about is in order for people to really understand how to work in this space and how to drive the vision that we have outlined, they really need to have their clinical experiences in very different locations. So within the community, in housing projects, in prisons in environments where they'll really get a very meaningful sense of what the impact of these social determinants are and what are some of the things that nurses can be doing about them. So it's really calling for a major shift, a major reframe of the way that we are doing both the didactic and the clinical education of the
1: future workforce. And I think an important part there is that we have to stop viewing these topics as an add-on. The way we prioritize it is integrating it throughout the curriculum in a comprehensive way to ensure these topics are covered in every single course. That's how we produce graduates with the capacity to address SDOH and social needs. When we, as an educational community, recognize that this lives throughout and not just in its one elective course that often we see in nursing schools. And back to the capacity question, I was looking at the word telehealth and I was thinking about something, you know, we're in this digital age, the use of technology is not going away. It's only going to increase, which has a lot of concerns with it when we think from an equity perspective about access, but also thinking the competencies and skills that nurses need to also keep up with that digital age. So what are the technical competencies necessary for nurses to keep performing their job when we're relying more on technology, AI, applications, patient monitoring devices, and all of those things. So also thinking about what we're using in practice and how are we ensuring that nurses have the skills and ability to use those technologies and things that we keep calling for, for nurses and so many other healthcare providers to use.
2: Yeah, I think that world keeps on evolving, and it's evolving so rapidly. Technology changes. Just thinking about things in practice that people are doing wearables, all kinds of things that keep on changing and transforming the way that things are happening in healthcare. So there does need to be space for that, for sure.
0: Marcus, you talked earlier about we're we're asking a lot of nurses, and I, you know, correctly also saying that we need to prioritize. Right, that this isn't the add on. That's how we. That's how we do it. The report asks a lot of nurse educators too. That's where the pipeline comes from. And concretely, you know, what can nursing schools do in the next year, in the next six months even, to start to make those changes? What would that look like?
1: So I think for me, and I spoke to this earlier, first and foremost, the report calls out racism. Not only how racism impacts health, but how nursing has been complicit. So if schools of nursing do not call out and acknowledge, and I'm going to quote Dr. Ken Beard here, acknowledging to what extent racism is operating within these spaces and institutions, then how are we going to intentionally, meaningfully develop strategies to address these issues within schools of nursing? So for me, those actions are examining the curriculum, institutional policies and practices, teaching strategies, how we allocate resources, how we distribute power and how all of that in the context of racism, bias, and discrimination are impacting the learning environment, not only for students, but also for faculty, because we know that students of color and faculty of color experience racism, discrimination, and bias in our educational settings. So we need to do in-depth examinations of how we perpetuate these systems in order to move toward a more equitable and inclusive learning environment where students and faculty feel safe, feel welcome, have a sense of belonging, feel supported, have the mentorship, have the resources that support them socially, economically, professionally, academically. And again, holistic admissions. Holistic admissions is not something that's new. And we also talk about it in the report. The American Association of Colleges of Nursing has done a lot of work around holistic admissions. But again, it's not just about holistic admissions. It's about who serves on those admissions committees. Who are the gatekeepers that are determining what students get in and what students don't. So you can move towards holistic admissions, but again, examining who is looking at the student profiles and who is making those decisions because the pipeline in nursing is when students are in elementary school and high school. So what are the barriers and the structural barriers that, we as schools of nursing place on communities because of who we admit, where we recruit and what we do. And again, it has to focus on equity and inclusion, how we treat individuals and how we make them feel valued in educational settings.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that was a perfect response, Marcus, and it covers so much. I mean, I do think, you know, we talked before about the curricular elements, the didactic and the clinical experiences, but I also think the faculty are so critical here, right? So we do talk about the need to diversify the faculty. We need faculty who understand the way social determinants of health operate and how to contextualize all of that and how to translate it all into a meaningful practice. And so those are skills and competencies that are very high level. And so we need to take a look at that in terms of our faculty as we think about the student body, but the faculty as well, as Marcus uh, mentioned.
1: And another thing, we have to stop feeling this intense amount of ownership of who teaches nurses. So there are also regulatory barriers in place by state boards of nursing that determine who can teach nurses. So when we're talking about health equity, racism, social determinants, public health, we know that nursing faculty don't feel comfortable nor have the competencies to teach in these areas, but we're limited by regulatory barriers on who we can hire to also teach nurses. I mean, it's crazy that a nurse with a master's in public health, but because they don't have an MSN, is not able to teach public health nursing in a school of nursing. I mean, that's crazy. They're the expert, but because of these barriers, we're limiting not only in public health, but we're talking about health policy, finance, all of these other bigger population level topics on how we move the needle in advancing health equity. We need to begin examining those barriers and how we can ensure that we have the faculty, not just nursing faculty, but interdisciplinary faculty from all backgrounds and disciplines who can support our efforts in this space. And the report also talks about some practical strategies that nurse educators can use now. In the education chapter, we have a section on discussing difficult topics where we provide strategies and recommendations and references to say this is how you can begin talking about race and racism in your classroom and it's okay to be uncomfortable i think that's the biggest piece and something that i've learned as an educator is that you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and you have to be comfortable with yourself to being vulnerable and making that space and allowing your students to teach you because we don't know everything the experiential learning piece is so so important and to comment on the experiential learning piece, because I know that um, Regina had mentioned that about where we train nurses. And I've always taught in the community. We have data that suggests that when we only talk about these issues in the classroom, that students were actually unintentionally reinforcing the biases and stereotypes for when these students enter clinical practice about vulnerable populations. So experiential learning is key to ensure that we're using the community as the teacher, that we're teaching students about health and healthcare beyond the walls of a hospital. And that's by taking students into libraries, public schools, prisons. As an educator, I teach community health nursing and I take students into those sites every day.
0: So we're talking about bringing nurses out of the classroom, You know, even in the foundation of their education. How about when they enter the field? How do we support nurses? How do we create an environment where they can be advocates for their clients, for their patients, for their community? What does it look like in the workplace? How do we foster that environment?
2: So, I mean, we're calling on employers to really support nurses, no matter who those employers are. So they could be traditional or they could be in the community setting, schools, etc. cetera. Making sure that nurses are supported to do this work is an absolutely essential part of what we need to do moving forward. So, I mean, there's lots of different ways that that could happen. I mean, like when I think about my own setting, I work in a traditional setting. There are nurses who are engaged in looking at assessing patients for social determinants of health, making sure that those things are happening. I think to the comments that Marcus made before about the schools, I think healthcare environments also need to look at those issues. They need to look at racism within their structures. They need to look at policies, procedures, practices that might be perpetuating or endorsing some of the structural factors that have led to Some of the challenges that we talk about in the report. So that's another thing that I think employers need to be accountable to do. So we call them out and make recommendations about them addressing those issues and supporting nurses. We also call out the importance of employers of nurses to pay attention to the issues about wellness, right, and nurse well-being. And these are critical factors that they're not new. I mean, COVID-19 certainly brought them into sharper focus, but in no way, shape, or form did COVID-19 create these problems. These problems have been in place now for decades, but they have not been addressed in a meaningful way by most employers of nursing. And so we do also call out employers to begin to take seriously addressing many of the issues that influence both the mental and physical health and well-being of nurses. I would love to hear more about
0: recommendations included in the report about how employers can support physical and mental well-being of staff. And, you know, as you had mentioned, this is something that's been in other reports from the National Academy of Medicine. Are there specific call-outs in this report or specific things to nursing, potentially? You know, what are some of those concrete recommendations that show promise?
2: One of the things that we need to do is make sure that employers actually acknowledge and take these things seriously. So they have to be aware of them and they have to put resources in place to support nurses. One of the things that, again, during the pandemic, nurses were so taxed, incredibly taxed in terms of their response. We saw nurses step up all over worldwide, really in terms of their response to the needs that patients had, related to COVID-19. I think that also created a lot of additional stress for nurses, tremendous stress. I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the report is the need for psychological PPE in addition to personal protective equipment, thinking about that as a physical barrier. We also talk about it as a psychological need. There was a huge need for psychosocial and psychological support for nurses and organizations need to allocate resources in order to do that. They need to recognize that need as something that has an important impact on outcomes because we know that when nurse well-being is low, we know that medical errors increase. We know that many other outcomes are negatively influenced by that. And so I think employers need to recognize the impact of that and to make investments and to use their voices, particularly nurse leaders within organizations like my own role. I'm a nurse, but I'm functioning as the CEO of an organization, to use your voice in order to help other people understand the importance of doing things to improve the health and well-being of nurses and to allocate resources in order to put programs in place. I mean, one of the things that we did in the institution where I practice at Penn Medicine was to implement a program to help nurses as well as other clinicians with mental health issues that were coming up for them during the pandemic. And there were a lot of them and many, many nurses access that resource. And we also heard from nurses that just knowing that that resource was available made a big difference for them in terms of the way that they felt. So things like that, I think, are important for employers
1: to be able to do. And I would add that nursing education as well. And we talk about this in the report within our well-being recommendation about integrating concepts about well-being and self-care early on. So when nurses graduate, they have an idea or an ability to care for themselves and then can adapt based on the resources that their employer would provide. So it's about ensuring from day one when you enter nursing school that we're prioritizing your health and well-being as we educate you and as you transition to practice. So it's, again, investing in those evidence-based programs, providing the resources and support both in schools of nursing and in hospitals. But it's also about ensuring a culture of safety and a culture of psychological safety. So in the quality improvement space, you hear a lot about a culture of safety and a culture of blame. And we talk in the report about how there needs to be protections for nurses when they speak up about poor working conditions, about bias, about experiencing discrimination or injustice or experiencing racism. So we also need to ensure that the mechanisms are in place to protect nurses that are doing their jobs, advocating for themselves, their colleagues, and their patients, which is extremely important. And I would also add much like the recommendations and strategies I discussed about education, it's taking that in-depth examination of a hospital's culture, values, systems and practices, and looking at how racism might be operating in that space.
2: I think another thing that we call out, Marcus, your point about including this early in people's education and preparation for the profession, we call out the need for nurses to recognize their own role in assuring their own mental health. So that's also part of the equation, helping nurses to understand how important it is and what their own role is in ensuring their mental health
1: and not penalizing nurses or students when they reach out for support and help, because we often do that as well. And we make a recommendation in the report about creating mechanisms to ensure that when a nurse or a student reaches out for support, that it's provided and they're not treated differently, because we know that nurses and people in general are hesitant to reach out for mental health support because of fear of stigma, fear of being treated differently. And in some states, To my understanding, a nurse could lose their job because they reach out for mental health support because they might be suicidal, for example. So why don't we have the same type of peer assistance programs that we do for nurses that experience substance use disorder for all of these other issues, social issues that they might be experiencing?
0: So if we change the equation about nurses being an expense versus nurses being a value add, a resource that we want to invest in, the nurses, they're the greatest resource. It's not what they're doing, it's who they are and what they're bringing to these scenarios, to patient care, to safety, to quality improvement, to all of the things that we've been talking about, social determinants of health. And I think that it's sort of shifting that orientation to that person, the whole person, is the resource that is the most valuable.
1: You raise an important point because from a business perspective, if I invest in nursing, I'm ensuring their well-being, I'm reducing the potential for error which would then reduce costs. So from the business perspective, it makes sense. And from the population perspective, we're ensuring nurses are supported and valued to do their job to improve population health. So it's a win-win on both sides of the coin when we make that investment into nursing.
0: So if you could change something about nursing education based on what you've learned and experienced,
1: what would it be? We as nursing educators must stop promoting the notion that you must have one to two years of med-surg experience to validate yourself as a nurse. It's absurd. It's unnecessary. I have never practiced in a med-surg environment. I'm a community health and a psychiatric mental health nurse. That is my skill set. That is my expertise. And there is nothing to say that I'm not a better nurse because I didn't have a med-surg experience. So we need to stop shifting and promoting students to go towards certain specialties because we believe that's what's important. We believe that's important because that's what society leads us to believe. Because again, back to Regina's comment, nursing started in the community. Public health are the roots of our profession. Hospitals came to be because of a whole variety of reasons. And we transitioned to that emphasis on medical care and being treated in the hospital and the system that we have today. So we have to move away from this frame of thinking that you need to do med surge in order to validate who you are as a nurse. Because I personally had an identity crisis because that's what I was being told for so long. So I said to myself, well, am I a nurse? I'm working in a shelter. Does that make me a nurse? And I came to the realization that, yes, I am a nurse. I'm the nurse of a community. I'm looking at things differently. I'm looking at social determinants of health. I'm looking at populations and I'm still emerging in my career, but I've come to get validation when people come to me and say, Marcus, you're a psych mental health nurse. I need your expertise. That's my skill set. That's what I bring to the table. So we need to ensure that we empower nurses to understand what their skills are, what their voice is, and what they bring to the table and to these conversations. And that starts with educators giving up this notion about med search.
2: I think that that frame shift is absolutely essential. Letting go, these anachronistic notions about things is really important to us advancing the health equity agenda. That is a very, very important component of our thinking, changing our thinking around this.
1: The way that we talk about race in how we conduct research and how we write textbooks and how we educate in the classroom promotes this false narrative that because of your race and ethnicity, that you're less than white people. So when people in power who reflect the majority population are developing programs and policies that impact education, that impact housing, they lack empathy because they don't understand the experience that many individuals in this country live with every day. So the way that we write in textbooks that because you are a certain race, you're at more risk for something. Or because you're a certain race, you have the potential to have a lower IQ. Or because you're a certain race, you're more at risk for entering the criminal justice system. That promotes this false narrative that supports what Regina talked about in terms of cultural racism, these ideals that people hold to be true that are not, and how they live, how they practice, and how they interact with people. So that's how downstream racism impacts health because we're promoting this false narrative that allows people to think, because you're a different color, because you look differently than I do, that I am less than and that I'm not worthy. And that's how we have the issues that we have with mass incarceration, with the issue of the school to prison pipeline, and so many other things that we see in our nation.
0: Regina, Marcus, thank you so much for taking time to join us on At The Core of Care. Thanks, Sarah, it's been
2: a great conversation. Appreciate you inviting us.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Sarah, for having us to discuss the Future of Nursing report.
0: Funding for our special Access to Care series comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and AARP Foundation. For more about us and our programs, log on to paactioncoalition.org and nurseledcare.org. You can also stay up to date with us on social media at paaction and at nurseledcare. At the Core of Care is produced by Stephanie Marutas and Emily Previty of Kubenda Media and mixed by Brad Linder. I'm Sarah Hexham Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us.